Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. This is the day we honor the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And over on MSNBC yesterday, Ellie Mistal made the point that people, he said, and I quote, people like Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema, these are the white people that Martin Luther King Jr. warned us about. Now, what was he talking about? King's warning was to the black community kind of indirect in as much as when it was announced back in April of 1963 that he was coming down to Birmingham, Alabama to participate in a peaceful march. A group of his colleagues, you know, other pastors, they were all white. There was one Jewish rabbi and one Catholic priest and a bunch of Protestant ministers. It was eight people, all eight white men altogether. And they published an open letter in the Birmingham newspaper. The headline is, White Clergy Urge Local Negroes to Withdraw from Demonstrations. And, the, and they say, you know, we the undersigned uh, issue an appeal for law and order and common sense in dealing with racial problems in Alabama. We are expressed, we expressed understanding that honest convictions in racial matters could properly be pursued in the courts, but urge that the decisions of those courts should be, in the meantime, peacefully obeyed. Responsible citizens have undertaken to work on various problems which cause racial friction and unrest, they talk about. And then they say uh, these recent events, they're talking about King coming to town, indicate that we all have an opportunity to be constructive and realistic. However, we are now confronted by a series of demonstrations by some of our Negro citizens directed and led in part by outsiders. We recognize the natural impatience of people who feel that their hopes are slow in being realized, but we are convinced that these demonstrations are unwise and untimely. Just as we formerly pointed out that hatred and violence have no sanction in our religions and political traditions, we also point out that such actions as incite hatred and violence, however technically peaceful those actions may be, 
have not contributed to the resolution of our local problems. And then they end the thing. It goes on for a couple more paragraphs. And then they end it by saying, we therefore strongly urge our own Negro community to withdraw support from these demonstrations and to unite locally in working peacefully for a better Birmingham. When rights are consistently denied, a cause should be pressed in the courts and negotiations among local leaders and not in the streets. We appeal to both our white and Negro citizenry to observe the principles of law and order and common sense. So this was a letter from eight white pastors published in the Birmingham newspaper telling Martin Luther King to stay out of town and telling the local civil rights folks, don't play with him, don't, don't participate with him. So he shows up and he gets arrested and thrown in jail. And in jail, he's given this newspaper and he wrote a letter, a rebuttal to it from that jail cell. In fact, he started writing it on the margin of that newspaper. Now this is Dr. King writing a letter to eight white people. I'm a white guy, 90% of my audience probably, I, you know, I don't have accurate numbers, but the vast majority of the audience for this program is white. He wrote this letter to us speaking to my white audience. I obviously, you know, he realized who he was and where he was in the stage of history. He was writing it to everybody, but um, I started yesterday when I was thinking about what I was going to do today. I sat down with this letter from the Birmingham jail and thought, you know, I'm going to find the highlights here and, and pop them out tomorrow because this was his, you know, his, his, him talking to, to this, this particular white audience. And as I was reading this, I was like, I can't find a spot that I just want to jump over or miss or omit. So I want to share with you in as much depth as I can, given the constraints of time, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King's letter from the Birmingham jail. I'm guessing that most, if not all of you, have never read the whole thing. And you really should. It's, a, it's, a, it's, it's one of the most, in my opinion, one of the most important pieces of American literature. This is brilliant literature. So let's start. He writes, while confined here in the Birmingham City Jail, I came across your recent statement calling my present activities unwise and untimely. Seldom do I pause to answer criticism of my works and ideas. If I sought to answer all the criticisms across my desk, my secretaries would have little time for anything other than such correspondence in the course of the day, and I'd have no time for constructive work. But since I feel that you are men of genuine goodwill, and that your criticisms are sincerely put forth. I want to try to answer your statement in what I hope will be patient and reasonable terms. I think I should indicate why I am here in Birmingham since you have been influenced by the view which argues against, quote, outsiders coming in. I have the honor of serving as president of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, an organization operating in every southern state with headquarters in Atlanta, Georgia. We have some 85 affiliated organizations across the South. One of them is the Alabama Christian Movement for Human Rights. Frequently, we share staff, educational, and financial resources with our affiliates. Several months ago, the affiliate here in Birmingham asked us to be on a call, to be on call, to engage in a nonviolent direct action program if such were deemed necessary. We readily consented. And so when the hour came, we lived up to our promise. So I, along with several members of my staff, am here now because I was invited here. I am here because I have organizational ties here. But more basically, I am in Birmingham because injustice is here. 
Just as the prophets of the 8th century B.C. left their villages and carried their thus saith the Lord far beyond the boundaries of their hometowns, just as the Apostle Paul left his village in Tarsus and carried the gospel of Jesus Christ to the far corners of the Greco-Roman world, so am I compelled to carry the gospel of freedom beyond my own hometown. Like Paul, I must constantly respond to the Macedonian call for aid. Moreover, I am cognizant of the interrelatedness of all communities and states. I cannot sit idly by in Atlanta and not be concerned about what happens in Birmingham. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. Never again can we afford to live with the narrow, provincial, outside agitator idea. Anyone who lives inside the United States can never be considered an outsider anywhere within its bounds. You deplore the demonstrations taking place in Birmingham, but your statement, I am sorry to say, fails to express a similar concern for the conditions that brought about the demonstrations. I am sure that none of you would want to rest content with the superficial kind of social analysis that deals merely with effects and does not grapple with underlying causes. It is unfortunate that demonstrations are taking place in Birmingham, but it is even more unfortunate that the city's white power structure left the Negro community no alternative. In any nonviolent campaign, there are four basic steps. Collection of the facts to determine whether injustices exist, negotiation, self-purification, and direct action. We have gone through all these steps in Birmingham. There can be no gainsaying the fact that racial injustice engulfs this community. Birmingham is probably the most thoroughly segregated city in the United States. Its ugly record of brutality is widely known. Negroes have experienced grossly unjust treatment in the courts. There have been more unsolved bombings of Negro homes and churches in Birmingham than in any other city in the nation. These are the hard, brutal facts of the case. On the basis of these conditions, Negro leaders sought to negotiate with the city fathers, but the latter consistently refused to engage in good faith negotiation. Then last September came the opportunity to talk with the leaders of Birmingham's economic community. In the course of the negotiations, certain promises were made by the merchants. For example, to remove the store's humiliating racial signs. On the basis of these promises, the Reverend Fred Shuttlesworth and the leaders of the Alabama Christian Movement for Human Rights agreed to a moratorium on all demonstrations. As the weeks and months went by, we realized that we were the victims of a broken promise. A few signs briefly remo removed, returned. The others remained. I'm reading from uh, Do Dr. Martin Luther King's letter from a Birmingham jail to eight white pastors, or eight white clergymen. It's a letter from Dr. King to white people, and I think it's important that everybody hear it as much as possible in its entirety. We'll be back.
I'm only reading the letter from King during the time that I'm on the air on all of our stations or free speech TV. And then we'll paste the whole thing together and put it on YouTube. But during these moments, I can take a phone call or what I wanted to do right now is just highlight for you my rant for the day, which you can find over at HartmanReport.com. It's titled, Want to Highlight Senators Blocking Voting Rights? Rename the Russell Senate Office Building. I think this is actually a big deal. Senator Richard Russell, on the floor of the United States Senate, when Hubert Humphreys, the vice president at the time, and, you know, <laughs> the energizer bunny for putting into the Senate civil rights and voting rights legislation, he started in the 1940s. And throughout the decade of the 1950s, Hubert Humphrey was, every two years, reintroduced this legislation. And every two years, Richard Russell would fight it. And finally, in 1964, this, well, actually, this was in 19, this, Richard Russell came into the Senate in 1932. And so in 1933, Eleanor Roosevelt introduced, I mean, she didn't have the power to introduce legislation, but she was, uh, had joined the NAACP, and uh, there were a couple of Democrats who, from the North, um, who were, you know, always trying to uh, propose civil rights legislation. They were, they were the, the good guys, as it were. Um, Robert Wagner was the main one of them. And he proposed this civil rights legislation, and, or excuse me, anti-lynching legislation in 1933. And Richard Russell, the guy who this, the Russell Senate office building is named after, stood up and said, and I quote, on the floor of the Senate in opposition to a bill to, to outlaw lynching, said, quote, as one who was born and reared in the atmosphere of the Old South with six generations of my forebears now resting beneath Southern soil, I am willing to go as far and make as great a sacrifice to preserve and ensure white supremacy in the social, economic, and political life of our state as any man who lives within her borders. That's Senator Richard Russell. That's the guy who proudly proclaimed in 1933 that he was willing to lay down his life for white supremacy. That's the guy that we named the Russell Office Building after in 1972. He did it in, in 1938. Uh, in, in, oh, and this bill did come to the floor of the Senate, and Russell, and Russell led a uh, six-day, an exhausting six-day filibuster, which established him as, you know, a lion of white supremacy in the United States Senate. But then, you know, fast forward to what I was talking about later, you know, in 1964, uh, when Humphrey and his allies put the Civil Rights Act on the floor in, in 1964. And Senator Richard, Richard Russell said that uh, we are going to wage a good fight for constitutional government. And Hubert Humphrey went after him. And this is what the Senate Archives says. Senator Richard Russell cautioned that the Civil Rights Act would break down the South's two different social orders, one white, one black, leading to the amalgamation and mongrelization of our people, end quote. That's what the Senate records Richard Russell, the guy we named the Russell office building after, where 33 senators have their offices. It's time to rename that building. Anyhow, get back to Dr. King.
Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. We are reading from Dr. Martin Luther King's letter from the Birmingham jail. And he's, he's talking about how the merchants said that they would get rid of the insulting racial signs, and they didn't. And so he continues, and in so many past experiences, our hopes had been blasted, and the shadow of deep disappointment settled upon us. We had no alternative except to prepare for direct action, whereby we would present our very bodies as a means of laying our case before the conscience of the local and the national community. Mindful of the difficulties involved, we decided to undertake a process of self-purification. We began a series of workshops on nonviolence, and we repeatedly asked ourselves, are you able to accept blows without retaliating? Are you able to endure the, uh, the, uh, to endure the ordeal of jail? We decided to schedule our direct action program for the Easter season, realizing that except for Christmas, this is the main shopping period of the year. Knowing that a strong economic withdrawal program would be the byproduct of direct action, we felt that this would be the best time to bring pressure to bear on the merchants for the needed change. Then it occurred to us that Birmingham's mayoral election was coming up in March, and we speedily decided to postpone action until after Election Day. Then we discovered that the Commissioner of Public Safety, Eugene Bull Connor, had piled up enough votes to be in the runoff. So we decided again to postpone action until the day after the runoff, so that the demonstrations could not be used to cloud the issues. Like many others, we waited to see Mr. Connor defeated, and to this end, we endured postponement after postponement. Having aided in this community need, we felt that our direct action program could be delayed no longer. You may well ask, why direct action? Why sit-ins, marches, and so forth? Isn't negotiation a better path? You are quite right in calling for negotiation. Indeed, this is the very purpose of direct action. Nonviolent direct action seeks to create such a crisis and foster such a tension that a community which has constantly refused to negotiate is forced to confront the issue. It seeks to so dramatize the issue that it can no longer be ignored. My citing the creating of tension as part of the work of the nonviolent register may sound rather shocking to you, but I must confess that I am not afraid of the word tension. I have earnestly opposed violent tension, but there is a type of constructive nonviolent tension which is necessary for growth. Just as Socrates felt it was necessary to create a tension in the mind 
so that individuals could rise from the bondage of myths and half-truths to the unfettered realm of creative analysis and objective appraisal, so must we see the need for nonviolent gadflies to create the kind of tension in society that will help men rise from the dark depths of prejudice and racism to the majestic heights of understanding and brotherhood. The purpose of our direct action program is to create a situation so crisis-packed that it will inevitably open the door to negotiation. I therefore concur with you in your call for negotiation. Too long has our beloved Southland been bogged down in a tragic effort to live in monologue rather than dialogue. One of the basic points in your statement is that the action that I and my associates have taken in Birmingham is untimely. Some have asked, why didn't you give the new city administration time to act? The only answer that I can give to this query is that the new Birmingham administration must be prodded about as much as the outgoing one before it will act. We are sadly mistaken if we feel that the election of Albert Boutwell as mayor will bring the millennium to Birmingham. While Mr. Boutwell is a much more gentle person than Mr. Bull Connor, they are both segregationists dedicated to maintenance of the status quo. I have hope that Mr. Boutwell will be reasonable enough to see the futility of massive resistance to desegregation. But he will not see this without pressure from devotees of civil rights. My friends, I say to you that we have not made a single gain in civil rights without determined legal and nonviolent pressure. We're reading from the uh, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King's letter from a Birmingham jail to eight white uh, clergymen. He had just said, my friends, I must say to you that we have not made a single gain in civil rights without determined legal and nonviolent pressure. And he continues the letter. Lamentably, it is an historical fact that privileged groups seldom give up their privileges voluntarily. Individuals may see the moral light and voluntarily give up their unjust posture. But as Reinhold Niebuhr has reminded us, groups tend to be more immoral than individuals. We know through painful experience that freedom is never voluntarily given by the oppressor. It must be demanded by the oppressed. Frankly, I have yet to engage in a direct action campaign that was, quote, well-timed, end quote, in the view of those who have not suffered unduly from the disease of segregation. For years now, I have heard the word, wait. It rings in the ear of every Negro with piercing familiarity. This wait has almost always meant never. We must come to see, with one of our most distinguished jurists, that, quote, justice too long delayed is justice denied, end quote. We have waited for more than 340 years for our constitutional and God-given rights. The nations of Asia and Africa are moving with jet-like speed toward gaining political independence, but we still creep at horse and buggy pace toward gaining a cup of coffee at a lunch counter. Perhaps it's easy for those who have never felt the stinging darts of segregation to say, wait, but when you have seen vicious mobs lynch your mothers and fathers at will and drown your sisters and brothers at whim, when you have seen hate-filled policemen curse, kick, and even kill your black brothers and sisters, 
When you see the vast majority of your 20 million Negro brothers smothering in an airtight cage of poverty in the midst of an affluent society, when you suddenly find your tongue twisted and your speech stammering as you seek to explain to your six-year-old daughter why she can't go to the public amusement park that has just been advertised on television and see tears welling up in her eyes when she is told that Fun Town is closed to colored children and see ominous clouds of inferiority beginning to form in her little mental sky and see her beginning to distort her personality by developing an unconscious bitterness toward white people? When you have to concoct an act answer for your five-year-old son who is asking, Daddy, why do white people treat colored people so mean? When you take a cross-country drive and find it necessary to sleep night after night in the uncomfortable corners of your automobile because no motel will accept you. When you are humiliated day in and day out by nagging signs reading white, and colored. When your first name becomes the N-word, your middle name becomes boy, however old you are, and your last name becomes John, and your wife and mother are never given the respected title Mrs. When you are harried by day and haunted by night by the fact that you are a Negro, living constantly at tiptoe stance, never quite knowing what to expect next, and you are plagued with inner fears and outer resentments, when you are forever fighting a degenerating sense of nobodiness, then you will understand why we find it difficult to wait. There comes, a t there comes a time when the cup of endurance runs over and men are no longer willing to be plunged into the abyss of despair. I hope, sirs, you can understand our legitimate and unavoidable impatience. You express a great deal of anxiety over our willingness to break laws. This is certainly a legitimate concern, since we so diligently urge people to obey the Supreme Court's decision of 1954 outlawing segregation in the public schools. At first glance, it may seem rather paradoxical for us consciously to break laws. One may well ask, how can you advocate breaking some laws and obeying others? The answer lies in the fact that there are two types of laws, just and unjust. I would be the first to advocate obeying just laws. One has not only a legal but a moral responsibility to obey just laws. Conversely, one has a moral responsibility to disobey unjust laws. I would agree with St. Augustine that an unjust law is no law at all. Now, what is the difference between the two? How does one determine whether a law is just or unjust? A just law is a, is a man-made code that squares with the moral law, or the law of God. An unjust law is a code that is out of harmony with the moral law. To put it in the terms of St. Thomas Aquinas, an unjust law is a human law that is not rooted in eternal law and natural law. Any law that uplifts human personality is just. Any law that degrades human personality is unjust. All segregation statutes are unjust because segregation distorts the soul and damages the personality. It gives the segregator a false sense of superiority and the segregated a false sense of inferiority. 
segregation, to use the terminology of the Jewish philosopher Martin Buber, substitutes an I-it relationship for an I-thou relationship and ends up relegating persons to the status of things. Hence, segregation is not only politically, economically, and sociologically unsound, it is morally wrong and sinful. Paul Tillich has said that sin is separation. Is not segregation an existential expression of man's tragic separation, his awful estrangement, his terrible sinfulness? Thus it is that I can urge men to obey the 1954 decision of the Supreme Court, for it is morally right. And I can urge them to disobey segregation ordinances, for they are morally wrong. Let us consider a more concrete example of just and unjust laws. An unjust law is a code that a numerical or power majority group compels a minority group to obey, but does not make binding on itself. This is difference made legal. By the same token, a just law is a code that a majority compels a minority to follow and that it is willing to follow itself. This is sameness made legal. Let me give another explanation. A law is unjust if it is inflicted on a minority that as a result of being denied the right to vote had no part in enacting or devising that law. Who could say that the legislature of Alabama which set up the state's segregation laws was democratically elected? Throughout Alabama, all sorts of devious methods are used to prevent Negroes from becoming registered voters. And there are counties in which, even though Negroes constitute a majority of the population, not a single Negro is registered. Can any law enacted under such circumstances be considered democratically structured? Sometimes a law is just on its face and unjust in its application. For instance, I've been arrested on a charge of parading without a permit. Now, there's nothing wrong in having an ordinance which requires a permit for a parade. But such, a such an ordinance becomes unjust when it is used to maintain segregation and to deny citizens the First Amendment privilege of peaceful assembly and protest. I hope you are able to see the distinction I am trying to point out. In no sense do I advocate evading or defying the law as would the rabid segregationist. That would lead to anarchy. One who breaks an unjust law must do so openly, lovingly, and with a willingness to accept the penalty. I submit that an individual who breaks a law that conscience tells him is unjust and who willingly accepts the penalty of imprisonment in order to arouse the conscience of the community over its injustice is in reality expressing the highest respect for the law. Of course, there is nothing new about this kind of civil disobedience. It was evidenced sublimely in the refusal of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to obey the laws of Nebuchadnezzar on the ground that a higher moral law was at stake. It was practiced superbly by the early Christians who were willing to face hungry lions and the excruciating pain of chopping blocks rather than submit to certain unjust laws of the Roman Empire. To a degree, academic freedom is a reality today because Socrates practiced civil disobedience. In our own nation, the Boston Tea Party represented a massive act of civil disobedience. 
We should never forget that everything Adolf Hitler did in Germany was legal. And everything the Hungarian freedom fighters did in Hungary was illegal. It was illegal to aid and comfort a Jew in Hitler's Germany. Even so, I am sure that had I lived in Germany at the time, I would have aided and comforted my Jewish brothers. If today I lived in a communist country where certain principles dear to the Christian faith are suppressed, I would openly advocate disobeying that country's anti-religious laws. I must make two honest confessions to you, my Christian and Jewish brothers. First, I must confess that over the past few years, I have been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's greatest stumbling block in his strive toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klanner, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Steve in Chicago. Hey, Steve, thanks for listening to WCPT. What's up? Uh, yes, I wanted to touch on the point that the xenophobia that you see on the part of a, of a big component of the American populace, people who tended to support Donald Trump, and they really found their voice when, when Donald Trump ran for that office and, and was the president. And I think it emboldened uh, these people. And, uh, not, and this is not to say that the, these individuals weren't among us all the time. They were. Um, mm -hmm. It's just that, that Donald Trump gave them legitimacy. Now, where, where I, I do have some hope is that uh, given the fluid nature of what we call whiteness in America, mm -hmm. you know, keep in mind, you know, we, many of us have seen that, that famous picture of, of the Klan marching in, in circa 1925, 26 in Washington, D.C. 
you know, that clan was not made up of people who were of Irish extraction, of Greek, of Italian, or of Slavic extraction. Those were, that was the, the second iteration of the clan, one in which, you know, the, America needs to be saved for a white Anglo-Saxon Protestants clan. Right, they were mostly and, Scotch, and that, Irish, and English. Right, exactly, and and that's the thing. So, uh, and and but today, what we define as whiteness includes a lot of people who would not have been considered white a century ago in in that march would have been considered something other that, sure. that there's some somewhere in between black and what they considered full on white. And and today, when you look at the, the demographic research, within two generations, Hispanics intermarry into the uh, into the larger population. The same with regard to Asians. In fact, it's slightly quicker for Asian Americans. And so, uh, I would argue that. Uh, the, the, the ongoing problem in America continues to be issues of, of Native Americans and African Americans in terms of the larger population, because other groups tend to assimilate and become a part of that larger uh, identity we call white America over a period of time. Uh, but but then the, you continue to see the people who are, on the, who are on the margins, and those, again, are African Americans and Native Americans. And I think that that, uh, that perhaps can, can offset some of, the, some of our fears and that perhaps you know, you, you'll see much more of, of uh, much more in terms of uh, what, what we call a, a sort of unified identity uh, moving forward. But at the same time, uh, again, the, the challenge has always been uh, this, the, the lack of Americans' willingness to accept African Americans and Native Americans into, into that equation. And I think that that's there, that continues to be a problem. Those being the two groups that white Americans specifically committed uh, you know, massive genocidal horrific crimes against. And I think the, there's white guilt around that. I think there's white fear of retribution around that. Right. And, and, um, and, to, and to be fair, and, and this is part of the equation, because I'm here in Chicago, and if you're from any nor, no, northern large city, you know that the identity that you come across every day when you, find, when you run into someone who's white, it's not that person whose great-great-great-great-grandparents got off the Mayflower. It's someone who is of Irish and Italian and Greek or Serbian or Russian extraction. That, that's who, who tends to dominate our large urban uh, areas in the north. Sure. And, and so for those people, they, they, say, they see themselves as, you know, this is not my problem. My people were oppressed when they came here. My great-grandfather couldn't get a job. Irish need not apply, that sort of thing. So they don't see themselves as being responsible for the oppression of Native Americans and African Americans because they, they said, well, you know, that, those were the white Anglo-Saxon Protestants who oppressed us as well. Take your argument to someone else. I mean, don't put it at my door. Now, obviously, you, we both know that there's advantages to being considered white in America that come with that. But that's so is, is, the, is the point of what you're saying, Steve, uh, Chicago, for example, has a large Polish-American community, that if you were to go into that large Polish-American community, and these are in many cases second, even third generation Americans, um, and say, uh, I'm trying to recruit people to work for civil rights. You know, we're, we're trying to extend voting rights and civil rights to all persons in America. And, you know, it's terrible the way that this country has been treating uh, in particular, black Americans and and uh, Native Americans, um, uh, that those people would just say, you know, basically slam the door in your face and say, not interested, not my problem. Well, I think it depends on the issue. I mean, for instance, uh, when, when you poll people in terms of issues such as reparations, uh, in, in, when you identify specifically what, what are called white ethnics, wets, in, in, in public policy circles, uh, you know, you get very little, uh, very little approval for things like, oh, like no. reparations because yeah. you know it's it's of the opinion like, hey, why are you coming to my uh, door, uh, picking my pocket? Yeah. I've got nothing to do I with it. it. Go talk to the white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. 
you know, we suffer, we suffered here as well. We didn't suffer uh, like the African Americans or Native Americans, but it's not our bill to pay. Is the attitude yeah. now? Whether you agree with that or not, that is the attitude. It's so a, that it depends yeah, on what you're talking about. It's, it's 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 a complex. It's kind of a Gordian knot in some ways. You know, you don't even know where to begin yeah. taking it apart. You can't just cut it. Um, and uh, I, you know, and, and, and I, I I'm just haunted by, and I mentioned this on the air the other day, I'm just haunted by when Louise and I, uh, back uh, more than a decade ago, in fact, uh, before the European Union, so it must have been like two or three decades ago, we were driving around with our kids in the back in a rental car in Ireland, and suddenly we had a, you know, a half-track, a Jeep with a submachine gun mounted on the back, following us, pointing their gun at us, and, you know, pretty soon they were on the speaker telling us to get the hell out of this area, and it was it was Northern Ireland, you know. It was it was like you know, we we had wandered into a part of town that we were not supposed to be in. This was during the Troubles, and these people all look the same. They all speak the same. They all you know the the only difference between them is religion and a loyalty to England versus loyalty to Ireland. Oh, absolutely, and, absolutely. And, and the notion of race and the notion of race in Europe means something entirely different than what it means in America, where someone's phenotype, you know, you look white, you look Hispanic. Right. Asian, no, exactly. No, we invented race, race, we invented race. whiteness in this country in, in 1630, in the 1630s in Virginia. Right. No, be, I mean, it right. was literally putting it around that in time. Europe. Yeah. Yes. Very yeah. People run around in Europe thinking of themselves as white. Yeah. There it's you go. So I, I I don't have I you know I, I the problem is I don't think anybody has a good solution for this other than you know we need to 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 interact with each other we need to grow up together we need to you know we need to we we have to have we, you know if we're going to have a multiracial pluralistic democracy and I think that's the goal of the majority of Americans then we actually have to do it and and uh, you know we've Agreed. tried we've tried ways to do it before. Um, they haven't worked out. Maybe they maybe they weren't tried right. You know, for example, uh, busing, integrating schools, things like that. We have successfully, to a large extent, integrated the military. You could argue that you know, for example, prisons are integrated, except that immediately people break into groups of their own of their own race, and and uh, it, you know, it's 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 a challenge. It's a real challenge. Steve, thank you for a very thoughtful call. Stella in Portland. Hey, Stella, what's on your mind? I have been in a grad program for teaching secondary education for the last year, and the first class we took was in anti-bias education, and we learned about critical race theory. And the reason why I think this is so interesting, I was just thinking about your talk yesterday, you were talking about crime, and is it the state's responsibility, is it the government's responsibility, and I think it really is. There are so many issues we see in education, such as school-to-prison pipeline, or even how young people are anxious about climate change and how our government is really the responsibility. And we can say we could try and take it into our own hands with sustained like protest, but ultimately we have to have like a p real partnership with our government. And so I just kind of wanted to assert that it's, it's important that we talk about critical race theory. And I think mm -hmm. that where our government and our we're almost coming to like a split, I feel, with how our government sits and also like our whole bipartisan <laughs> government yeah. getting in the way of like actual change happening. So I'm going to ramble, but yeah, what I, are your thoughts on that? I, I absolutely get what you're saying, Stella, and I'm not sure where it is right now. There was a fascinating piece that was uh, a right winger claiming that they had succeeded in causing most white people to think that critical race theory 
means we're teaching white children to be ashamed of themselves, rather than the reality that critical race theory is an understanding of how law enforces racism and the classism associated with it. If my definition is accurate, you're the one who's the scholar here. Um, please correct me if I'm wrong. And, and I think it's really important that you know we either reclaim that phrase with the proper definition, which I realize academics are trying to do, or simply abandon it in the public discussion because it's been so, you know, the conservatives who are bragging about the fact that they've got this new thing that they can beat people over the head with, you know, the, it's sort of like Rush Limbaugh made the word liberal something that was toxic for most of the 90s. <laughs> I, I, I just know your thoughts, yeah. Stella. I mean, our bias, what we bring to whatever we do is going to have an impact on the people around us. Right. And so if we can, like, take a step back and reflect on what we have to say. Yeah, I I'm, hear you, music. I'm with you. Thank you for taking my call. Yeah, Stella, this is what, uh, this is what uh, Daniel Quinn used to call mother culture, right? It's uh, mother culture tells us, you know, it lays the foundation, tells us how things are. And at a certain point, you know, we have to change mother culture when mother culture becomes toxic. And there's parts of it that are. from Dr. Martin Luther King's letter to eight white clergy who had published an open letter in the Birmingham newspaper asking him not to come to Alabama, uh, not to come to Birmingham. Uh, this is from his letter from a Birmingham jail. I'm going to repeat what I started before because I didn't finish. It was a long sentence, a long paragraph. I must make two honest confessions to you, my Christian and Jewish brothers. First, I must confess that over the past few years, I have been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in his stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klanner, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice, who constantly says, I agree with you in the goal you seek, but I cannot agree with your methods of direct action who paternalistically believes he can set the timetable for another man's freedom, who lives by a mythical concept of time and who constantly advises the Negro to wait for a more convenient season. Shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection. I had hoped that the white moderate would understand that law and order exist for the purpose of establishing justice, and that when they fail in this purpose, they become the dangerously structured dams that block the flow of social progress. I had hoped that the white moderate would understand that the present tension in the South is a necessary phase of the transition from an obnoxious negative peace in which the Negro passively accepted his unjust plight, to a substantive and positive peace in which all men will respect the dignity and worth of human personality. Actually, we who engage in nonviolent direct action are not the creators of tension. We merely bring to the surface the hidden tension that is already alive. We bring it out in the open where it can be seen and dealt with. 
like a boil that can never be cured so long as it is covered up, but must be opened with all its ugliness to the natural medicines of air and light, injustice must be exposed with all the tension its exposure creates to the light of human conscience and the air of national opinion before it can be cured. In your statement, you assert that our actions, even though peaceful, must be condemned because they precipitate violence. But is this a logical assertion? Isn't this like condemning a robbed man because his possessions of money precipitated the evil act of robbery? Isn't this like condemning Socrates because his unswerving commitment to truth and his philosophical inquiries precipitated the act by the misguided populace in which they made him drink hemlock? Isn't this like condemning Jesus because his unique God consciousness and never ceasing devotion to God's will precipitated the evil act of crucifixion? We must come to see that, as the federal courts have consistently affirmed, it is wrong to urge an individual to cease his efforts to gain his basic constitutional rights because that quest may precipitate violence. Society must punish, but must protect the robbed and punish the robber. I had also hoped that the white moderate would reject the myth concerning time in relation to the struggle for freedom. I've just received a letter from a white brother in Texas. He writes, quote, all Christians know that the colored people will receive equal rights eventually, but it is possible that you are in too great a religious hurry. It has taken Christianity almost 2,000 years to accomplish what it has. The teachings of Christ take time to come to earth, end quote. Such an attitude stems, stems from a tragic misconception of time, from the strangely irrational notion that there is something in the very flow of time that will inevitably cure all ills. Actually, time itself is neutral. It can be used either destructively or constructively. More and more, I feel that the people of ill will have used time much more effectively than have the people of good will. We will have to repent in this generation, not merely for the hateful words and actions of the bad people, but for the appalling silence of the good people. Human progress never rolls in on wheels of inevitability. It comes through the tireless efforts of men willing to be co-workers with God, and without this hard work, time itself becomes an ally of the forces of social stagnation. We must use time creatively in the knowledge that the time is always ripe to do right. Now is the time to make real the promise of democracy and transform our pending national elegy into a creative psalm of brotherhood. Now is the time to lift our national policy from the quicksand of racial injustice to the solid rock of human dignity. This is from Dr. Martin Luther King's letter to eight white clergymen in Birmingham who had asked him to stay out of town to avoid violence. And in my opinion, it is one of uh, the great pieces of literature from the 20th century. And it really deserves to be heard to the extent that I can. I'll continue with Dr. King's letter on the other side of this break.
Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. We are reading Dr. Martin Luther King's letter to a group of white people, to eight white pastors in, uh, in Birmingham in 1963 who had asked him not to come to town. And he's writing from the jail, having just been given their letter saying, stay out of town. And uh, he's, he's been talking about the white church. So he goes, and, he, and he, he, he continues. Things are different now. So often the contemporary church is a weak, ineffectual voice with an uncertain sound. So often it is an arch defender of the status quo. Far from being disturbed by the presence of the church, the power structure of the average community is consoled by the church's silent and often even vocal sanction of things as they are. But the judgment of God is upon the church as never before. If today's church does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authenticity, forfeit the loyalty of millions, and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century. Every day I meet young people whose disappointment with the church has turned into outright disgust. Perhaps I have once again been too optimistic. Is organized religion too inextricably bound to the status quo to save our nation and our world? Perhaps I must turn my faith to the inner spiritual church, the church within the church, as the true ecclesia and the hope of the world. But again, I am thankful to God that some noble souls from the ranks of organized religion have broken loose from the paralyzing chains of conformity and joined us as active partners in the struggle for freedom. They have left their secure congregations and walked the streets of Albany, Georgia with us. They have gone down the highways of the South on torturous road rides for freedom. Yes, they have gone to jail with us. Some have been dismissed from their churches, have lost the support of their bishops and fellow ministers. But they have acted in the faith that right defeated is stronger than evil triumphant. Their witness has been the spiritual salt that has preserved the true meaning of the gospel in these troubled times. They have carved a tunnel of hope through the dark mountain of disappointment. I hope the church as a whole will meet the challenge of this decisive hour. But even if the church does not come to the aid of justice, I have no despair about the future. I have no fear about the outcome of our struggle in Birmingham, even if our motives are at present misunderstood. We will reach the goal of freedom in Birmingham and all over the nation because the goal of America is freedom. Abused and scorned though we may be, our destiny is tied up by America's destiny. Before the pilgrims landed at Plymouth, we were here. Before the pen of Jefferson etched the majestic words of the Declaration of Independence across the pages of history, we were here. For more than two centuries, our forebears labored in this country without wages. They made cotton king. 
They built the homes of their masters while suffering gross injustice and shameful humiliation. And yet out of a bottomless vitality, they continued to thrive and develop. If the inexpressible cruelties of slavery could not stop us, the opposition we now face will surely fail. We will win our freedom because the sacred heritage of our nation and the eternal will of God are embodied in our echoing demands. Before closing, I feel impelled to mention one other point in your statement that has troubled me profoundly. You warmly commended the Birmingham police force for keeping order and, quote, preventing violence. I doubt that you would have so warmly commended the police force if you had seen its dogs sinking their teeth into unarmed, nonviolent Negroes. I doubt that you would so quickly commend the policemen if you were to observe their ugly and inhumane treatment of Negroes here in the city jail. If you were to watch them push and curse old Negro women and young Negro girls, if you were to see them slap and kick old Negro men and young boys, if you were to observe them as they did on two occasions, refuse to give us food because we wanted to sing our grace together. I cannot join you in praise of the Birmingham Police Department. It is true that the police have exercised a degree of discipline in handling the demonstrators. In this sense, they have conducted themselves rather nonviolently in public. But for what purpose? To preserve the evil system of segregation. Over the past few years, I have consistently preached that nonviolence demands that the means we use must be as pure as the ends we seek. I have tried to make clear that it is wrong to use immoral means to attain moral ends. But now I must affirm that it is just as wrong, or perhaps even more so, to use moral means to preserve immoral ends. Perhaps Mr. Connor and his policemen have been rather nonviolent in public, as was Chief Pritchett in Albany, Georgia. But they have used the moral means of nonviolence to maintain the immoral end of racial injustice. As T.S. Eliot said, the last temptation is the greatest treason to do the right deed for the wrong reason. I wish you had commended the Negro sit-inners and demonstrators of Birmingham for their sublime courage, their willingness to suffer, and their amazing discipline in the midst of great provocation. One day, the South will recognize its real heroes. They will be the James Merediths with the noble sense of purpose that enables them to face jeering and hostile mobs and with the agonizing loneliness that characterizes the life of the prisoner. They will be old, oppressed, battered Negro women symbolized in a 72-year-old woman in Montgomery, Alabama who rose up with a sense of dignity and with her people decided not to ride segregated buses, and who responded with ungrammatical profundity to one who inquired about her weariness, quote, my feet is tired, but my soul is at rest. They will be the young high school and college students, the young ministers of the gospel, and a host of their elders courageously and nonviolently sitting in at lunch counters and willingly going to jail for conscience sake. One day, the South will know that when these disinherited children of God sit down at lunch counters, they were in reality standing up for what is best in the American dream 
and for the most sacred values in our Judeo-Christian heritage, thereby bringing our nation back to those great wells of democracy that were dug deep by the founding fathers in their formulation of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. Never before have I written so long a letter. I'm afraid it is much too long to take your precious time. I can assure you that it would have been much shorter if I had been writing from a comfortable desk, but what else can one do when he is alone in a narrow jail cell other than write long letters, think long thoughts, and pray long prayers? If I had said, have said anything in this letter that overstates the truth and indicates an unreasonable impatience, I beg you to forgive me. If I have said anything that understates the truth and indicates my having a patience that allows me to settle for anything less than brotherhood, I beg God to forgive me. I hope this letter finds you strong in the faith. I also hope the circumstances will soon make it possible for me to meet each of you, not as an integrationist or a civil rights leader, but as a fellow clergyman and a Christian brother. Let us all hope that the dark clouds of racial prejudice will soon pass away and the deep fog of misunderstanding will be lifted from our fear-drenched communities. And in some not too distant tomorrow, the radiant stars of love and brotherhood will shine over our great nation with all their scintillating beauty. Yours for the cause of peace and brotherhood, Martin Luther King Jr. Special thanks to Louise Hartman, Sean Taylor, Nate Atwell, Jamie Holly, Joyce the Hammer Nance, Nigel Peacock, Sue Nethercote, Patrick Hoyt, Geraldine Halbert, Ron Hartenbaum, Chase Sprouse, Nicholas Miller, Pat Sweeney, Jabberwocky, Jay LeBlanc, Connor Arroyo, and Carne Verde. All the folks who work on this program. And thank you to you for uh, participating with our program and spreading the good word. Get out there, get active, tag your it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.